Good afternoon. My name is Francisco Panizza. I'm a senior lecturer in Latin American politics in the government department, and I will have the honor of chairing this event. May I welcome you all to this public lecture by the President of Chile, Madame Michelle Bachelet. In many ways, President Bachelet's life is representative of the lives of thousands of fellow Chileans from her generation, in that her personal and family life cannot be separated from the dramatic events that have shaped the contemporary history of her country. Following the military coup of September 11, 1973, she and her mother suffered imprisonment, torture, and exile. And her father, Air Force General Alberto Bachelet, died in prison for defending the constitutional order. On her return to Chile in 1979, President Bachelet combined her medical career with political activity as member of Chile's Socialist Party, the party of the late President Salvador Allende. In that character, she was the first woman in Chilean and Latin American history to hold the health and defense portfolios. And on January the 15th, 2006, she became the first ever woman president of Chile. If President Bachelet's personal life has been marked by the human suffering that followed the military coup of General Pinochet, her political career shows how much has changed in Chile since the dark years of the 1970s and 1990s. I'm sure that President Bachelet would have much to say about her country's history, but the craft of a president is not so much to dwell into the past, but to stare into the future and inspire her people. And on this note, it is my privilege to invite President Bachelet to address the London School of Economics and Political Science on the topic of free and fair, an agenda for the democratic transformation of Latin America. Madam President. Thank you, Professor Penicio, and thank you so much for this invitation and this opportunity to be with you at the London School of Economics and Political Science. It is truly an honor for me to be here. It should come as no surprise that we in Chile are very familiar, familiar with the school. We have an active LSE alumni group in Chile, and it's a growing number. I understand that now we have, like, for Chile, a record number of something like 80 students now. And really, uh, we're very happy and we hope we can increase the number of students. I am confident that they are enjoying their time here and hope they take advantage of the opportunity they have to learn and absorb as much as possible. So what, when they return to Chile, they may contribute, they should and they would, I'm sure, contribute to the prosperity and success of our country. In fact, I would say in one way or another, the LSE has been doing just that for decades. Not only has it, been, has it been a training ground for many of our business, academic, and political leaders, but through the academic contribution the LSE has made to the world of ideas, Chile has been very directly, and I would say positively, affected by the scholarship which has emerged from the LSE, from beverage to Hayek, to Popper, to Giddens. Today, though, perhaps the challenges are somewhat different 
than they have been in the past. This is on the whole, I would say, a positive thing. Our challenges in Latin America are different because our conditions have changed. They are different now. And they demand new visions. If we think back to the 1998, we recall that elections and liberty were a major concern. Our region was just emerging from decades marked by undemocratic rule, military intervention, and human rights abuses. Today, however, there are free democratic elections in practically every country in this hemisphere. From 2005 to 2007, presidential elections took place in 12 Latin American countries. All these elections were free and competitive, and the results were accepted. Between 1992 and 2007, there was not a single coup d'etat as had become customary in the region. While 15 presidents elected in that period were unable to complete their mandates, none of these crises ended in a complete breakdown of democracy as it was the case in the past. Having said that, there are still many tensions and weaknesses that may affect democratic rule in the region. Institutions are not as strong as they should be, and electorate constituencies often feel that democratically elected governments fail to deliver basic goods. In many cases, we still suffer from public and private sector corruption, socioeconomic inequities, weak political institutions, growing crime and violence, lack of accountability to mention some issues. And even stable democracies can become overconfident. This self-complacent democracy are backed by a strong and long-standing national tradition of openness and pluralism, but now face stagnation or setbacks in civic commitment and participation, or are not responding adequately to the demands for change. Poll after poll in Latin America demonstrates that the electorate is disenchanted with politics and politicians. Congress, political parties, and the judiciary are judged by citizens as corrupt or untrustworthy, often to a degree that far outweighs reality. Citizens increasingly prefer to express themselves directly, circumventing to traditional, the traditional instrument of political representation, including parties and even congresses. And there is increasing apathy among our citizens, particularly the young, who refuse to participate in civic affairs and elections. Such disenchantment is also aggravated by the perception that large economic groups and the mass media wield too much influence. Television coverage is now action-oriented, emphasizing simple and direct messages or sound bites, thus tending to further devalue political debate. In other words, the great leaps our democracy have made over the last 25 years are being eroded by the problems that have remained unresolved. And we know what potential dangers that can mean. Disenchantment with politics often leads to populism and populism to democratic re re reversal. So what I'm trying to stress here, I believe that for so long we struggled to be free in many ways, we forgot to be fair. We forgot that a fair democracy requires the equality of opportunity that comes from access to education, health care, social security, or housing. 
We forgot that a fair democracy allows and encourages citizen participation at every level. Democracy, in short, must be inclusive in all respects. It must deliver goods, especially to those who have made great sacrifices in recent years, but have received very little in reward, as shown by the level of poverty that still prevails in Latin America. Today, 205 million Latin Americans live below the poverty line, although in the last four years the overall number has decreased by 10%. 205 million remain a number that is frankly unacceptable. Moreover, income inequalities continues to be the worst in Latin America in comparison to other regions. And to this we must add inequalities in gender, issues, race, urban versus rural, housing, ethnical, among others. So we have to urgently address the new challenges in our democracy. And let's review them. First and foremost, we must never forget, as was the case in the past, that a democracy without its procedural dimension is simply not a democracy. Strengthening civil liberties and representative democracy must be a primary progressive goal. Secondly, as I said, we must enable democracies to effectively respond to mounting social demands. This will require investment in human resources, in education, in health care, in housing, in social security. Or, as the Mexican writer Carlos Fuentes has put it, democracia debe ser sinónimo de bienestar. Or in English, democracy must be synonymous with well-being. This means, in turn, that the role of the state must be reassessed. To ensure that the benefit of our economic policies reach all of our citizens, we cannot afford a weakened uh, state. The complex challenges of today's world require more state, not less state. But this must be an efficient state, one which facilitates the implementation of strong and well-targeted social policies to remedy the insufficiencies of the market. We know that tackling poverty and inequality requires economic growth, but growth alone is insufficient. If social cohesion is the underpinning of democracy, well-directed social policies pursued by state intervention are needed. This is what we have done and continue to do in Chile and over the last 17 years of democracy, which has been accomplished. Much has been accomplished. Between 1990 and 2005, our economy grew at average rates of 5.7%. In the same period, the GDP quadrupled, while our per capita GDP tripled. And despite social demands and demonstrations, normal in a democracy, but which to some appear as insta instability, recent data about political stability places Chile at the same level as OECD countries, above the average of East Asian nations, as well above other Latin American countries. Something very similar occurs with indicators regarding institution, control of corruption, and economic competitiveness. As a result of the above, Chile has today a more inclusive society. Chilean living, Chileans living in poverty declined from almost 40% in 1990 to 13% in 2006. 70% of those enrolled in universities are the first generation in their families to reach higher learning. Income inequality is still high, but it has been reduced. For the first time, I would say, the Gini index in 2006 diminished from 0 0.57 to 0 0.54. 
So it's the first time that we see the social policies has really produced small yet insufficient, um, I would say, redistribution inside the country. Again, we can clearly see the importance of state action on this matter. The richest 20% receives around 14 times the share of the poorest 20%. But when you take into consideration social benefits and social policies we have been de developing, that gap is reduced by half. Studies indicate that if in 1990 80% of poverty reduction was uh, attributable solely to economic growth, that is a uh, trickle-down effect from the rich to the poor, in 2006 the exact opposite is the case. 80% of the poverty reduction in the last years is due to government social policies. You see, we can change things, and I think that's the important issue. We can change what is not fair, and we can do it from the state. An active state is, of course, not new in Latin America. But for many decades, the state was not an instrument for solving people's problems, nor for making great strides in development. Rather, the state was captured by diverse interests, be they corporate, military, political, or private. At the same time, we learned that the market was also unable to provide adequate and lasting solutions. Because of this history, or in spite of it, our citizens continue to look to the state, to us, to solve the problems that the markets cannot. To do so, institutions matter. Those of us who call ourselves progressive know that without properly functioning institutions, the state will take us nowhere. But without a healthy, institutionalized state, the market will take us where we do not wish to go. Those of us who call ourselves progressive recognize that to bring the state back in, we must do responsibly, efficiently, and professionally. Third, we must bring citizens into the process. We must encourage participation as a central part of the state's activity. Studies show that our citizens no longer wish to be the objects of public policy. They want to be the subjects of public policy. Too often, the traditional verticalism of our institution has not taken into account the voice of the people in the design and implementation of, of, of public policy. This top-down approach has been a mistake, and we must correct it. We cannot be afraid of participation. Even though this means less power for the state, traditionally so powerful in Latin America, Yet we, must need, yet we must not be afraid of relinquishing power because we're not really relinquishing it. We are returning it. And we must do it for two reasons. We must do so for two reasons. One, because public apathy can end up corroding the legitimacy of our democracies. And two, because we know that public input and consultation result in more efficient and more legitimate public policies. And of course, we must progress towards greater participation in our institutional arrangements, greater decentralization, introduction of plebiscitary formulas on certain issues, laws which encourage the participation of women, on, of uh, uh, ethnic groups, citizens' uh, initiative bills, among others. Fourth, something which is not always associated to democracy, but which is of vital importance to it and its survival, rule of law. In many places of Latin America, although political authoritarianism no longer exists, 
we continue to observe a kind of um, social authoritarianism, which is, can also be totally damaging to our society. The debilitation of the rule of law has meant that citizens in many parts of Latin America are afraid to go out. Does it mean that crime is rampant and violent? I don't know, perhaps. But more fundamentally, it means that the rule of law has broken down, that the state has failed in some of its primary functions. What is the difference if we cannot leave our houses at night because of a government-imposed curfew or because of fear of crime? What is the difference if our freedom is curtailed by the indiscriminated whim of dictators or by the indiscriminate whim of neighborhood gangs? Organized crime, corruption, inefficient judiciary systems, police brutality, among others, are issues which we must address if we are concerned with transforming democracy. Last but not least, there is the issue of human rights. The region has made great strides in eliminating imprisonment without cause, torture, exile, disappearances, and max executions of political opponents. Today, the challenge is to protect and promote human rights in the broadest sense of them. This includes, of course, the protection of social and economic rights, but with new approaches that may have been absent in the past. Social inequalities remains very high in Latin America, but this income disparity is not only an economic problem. It reflects a pattern of exclusion that is repeated in other aspects of public life, and which in many cases have lasted for too long, such as the exclusion and discrimination of women or indigenous populations. It is our particular desire that ethnic origin not be a source of discrimination, that diversity enriches our cultural heritage, and that Chile's indigenous people are, and feel that they are, increasingly included in the political process from which they for so long have been excluded. People are increasingly becoming aware of their citizenship, that is to say of the right and of the rights they are missing, Today, and this is an achievement of our new democracies, we have sufficient freedom to realize when democracy is not being fair. This presents a great challenge to our government because the realization that some are more equal than others is painful. We do not want it to be the norm. The governments of Latin America must not only guarantee human rights, but must guarantee it equally to all. The struggle against racism, intolerance, and all forms of discrimination is also a priority for my government. Chile somos todos, as I have said, on one more than on more than one occasion. That means Chile is each and every Chilean, a country built by all of its citizens. My friends, in the coming years many of the republics in Latin America will be celebrating their bicentennials. This seems as good a time as any to stop and reflect on what we have achieved and what remains to be done. Clearly, we have achieved much. Today, the region is more democratic. Our people are better off. Social mobility is improving. Women have more opportunities than they have ever had. Some even became president. <laughs> Two women became president. As, but as I have outlined it here today, there are many outstanding challenges. In the past, we thought that we had, more than we had, we thought they were, they were clear answers. 
Sometimes we call them these answers ideology. Sometimes we call them models. Today we understand that like a bottle of good Chilean wine, the label is not as important as the content. But if we do not have a model, if we don't have a model, how do we insert our policy orientation within some sort of overall framework? Actually, we are very clear on what we wish to achieve. Indeed, this is the great lesson of the Chilean experience, because even though in Chile we still have much work to do, I believe that our way of proceeding has brought results. We have never lost sight of the objectives, more democracy, more economic growth, more and more and more equal opportunities, a better state, expansion and strengthening of human rights. In this place, so associated with progressivism, from the Fabians to the Third Way, I am proud to say that this is the legacy and the challenge of the progressive agenda in Latin America. And it is the only way to achieve real democratic transformation. Thank you very much. have about 15 minutes for questions and answers. Uh, please uh, identify yourself uh, when asking a question and please be brief so we can have as many questions as possible. I would take, I guess, two or three questions at a time and then give uh, President Bachelet the opportunity to answer them. Uh, at, the, at the back, they are the last row. Um, there are microphones in the... Hello. Um, good afternoon. My name is Darin Kaczyski. I'm a Chilean. I'm an ex-alumni at the LSE. Um, at the moment, I'm based in Brussels. I am the director of a research institute uh, working on social housing issues. And uh, from my field of activity, I would like to highlight and welcome very much uh, President Bachelet, uh, your initiative last year to uh, have a, a change, a change of approach in urban and social housing policy in, in, in our country, in Chile. Um, for the first time, I think, in Latin America, we have a pioneering will to change one of the deepest expressions of what you have highlighted, uh, uh, social inequality, which is segregation. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's really a great thing, I think, that in Chile we are, you are now trying to change things and to create uh, better integrated urban communities and to give uh, poor people decent housing, uh, which is well integrated into cities with good access to You can be brief, please. So. <laughs> okay. Well, I just wanted to welcome that, and if uh, President Bachelet would like to, to say a few words about that, that would be very happy. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, on the left there, yep. Hi, I'm, hello, I'm Juan Spinetto from Bloomberg News. Uh, just as many uh, commodities countries, commodity producing countries, um, Chile is suffering from high inflation uh, these last uh, months. So my question is, what's, uh, what are you planning to do about it? On the center there, I'm, yep, the blue, with the blue. President, I'm a, a Chilean student here in the UK. 
I'm Nicolas Figari. I'm studying in Nottingham. I want to, um, as you have said in your presentation, one of the issues that also impact uh, Latin American democracies is corruption. And we have done a lot in that uh, issue, in that area. And I want to ask you if you have any special policy that you want to introduce in the second part of your presidency. Thank you. Well, I'm pressing if you want to answer this question. Okay. Well, first of all, thank you for your kind remarks about our new policy in housing, social housing. Uh, I think you almost said everything. <laughs> but no, 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 it wasn't a joke because I'm, I'm not the brief kind of girl. So uh, I can speak three times longer than you. But uh, the thing is that uh, we realized, and, but it's interesting as a symbol of what we're trying to do in all social policies. Um, Chile is a country that has a lot of problems still, have a lot, a lot of work to do. But in some areas, we have already solved the issue of access. Not in everything, but in many areas. I mean, for example, um, education. We have pretty high levels of education, access to education, uh, not only uh, from uh, initial education to university and so on. So our, our main challenge today is quality. So when I came into office, I, we, we did have uh, a wonderful um, achievement if you compare what we had in 1990 when we recovered democracy. There was a million Chileans without house living in, 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 in shanty towns or in, in, the, in, the, in the parents' house in very bad conditions. So the first task was we have to build lots of houses. But now our, our, when we came into power, we said our challenge is other. First of all, it's not good to just build and build houses without a urban perspective, without building uh, like neighborhoods, like uh, community. I mean, houses is, of course, your, the place where you live, but you need to be in sort of a, a way of how you want the city to, to, to develop. And then so we realized we needed to, to develop a urbanism policy, more than building houses, building villages or community, whatever the neighborhoods, I would say, uh, building uh, houses with uh, uh, green spaces, with, with uh, places for the children to play, with uh, next to that uh, uh, um, healthcare facilities and uh, uh, places for the, for the organization of the, of, the, um, of the neighbors and so on. It's another way of thinking. But also the quality of the... The, the size of the house, because when you have nothing, a small house can be the difference. But it can be, a, I would say, a more dignifying house. It's much better for the life of the couple, for the life of the, of the family, and for the quality of life. So I would say um, this is a very important uh, issue. But also, regarding, regarding to this, or related to this, it's another special program called Quiero Mi Barro, I, I Love My Neighborhood. And then we're not talking about new, new uh, um, uh, housing uh, accommodation places. Um, we're talking about old ones, very deteriorated ones. So we intervene, we have money, we work the Minister of Housing with the neighborhoods organization, and the old neighborhoods organization decide what they want to do with that money, how they want to recover that old neighborhood that was very deteriorated. I like this second uh, program too because it includes many of the things that I said. It includes 
improvement of quality of life, improvement of quality of neighborhood, and, and, and then to form community, to have social places and social lives where people can speak, can talk, can debate, can analyze also, can play, but also with citizens' participation that I think in my country we have to do much more about it. And I really believe in the role of stakeholders. I really believe in the role of the own people to know, not only to demand answers, but also to propose uh, responses. So I think we're trying to do, the, I think it covers both things, a necessity, but also a necessity for democracy, if I may say. Uh, yes, inflation has been a huge problem for us. I mean, because uh, it's, it's mainly due to external factors and uh, mainly um, oil prices and food prices. Uh, oil, well, we are a country with 70% importers of, uh, of uh, all kinds of energies. So it, it has impact a lot uh, from, from one side inflation and the other side economy, some economic areas. So uh, in our country, the central bank is in charge of the, of, of, of the policies, of this policy, but we do as much as we can. Uh, we are, uh, the central bank uh, for one time decided to, to well, because we have another problem, inflation is high, but the dollar is buried down, so we have a problem in exports because of that. So it's very difficult, the, the balance, the equation that you, you have to do to maintain a competitive dollar and to fight against uh, inflation. So what we have done in March, we sent a package to, uh, of, law, of laws to the parliament and it's, they were rapidly approved. Uh, it, it, what we did there, we, um, we diminished uh, a, a, a part, a tax part of the price of the, of the um, diesel and, and gasoline, of the gasolines. So the so, uh, gasoline's price won't be that high for the consumers, you know. Uh, mainly uh, media class, but also uh, there's a lot of people who are, um, have less incomes to use the car to work or, or, or to go from, from one place to another. We also uh, uh, included there, uh, we um, eliminated a, a special tax for SMEs that uh, produces a lot of obstruction obstacles um, in, I would say, it um, increased the cost of, of their production, and so that will help SMEs to, to, to develop more and also to be a more active part of the economy, with many other initiatives we took the last two years. Uh, third, we also eliminate, uh, I mean, we, or we eliminate um, a franchise uh, in the construction of high, uh, very big houses that they did not pay a tax, and, and that, that is to, to be able to pay the the, the gasoline issue. I mean, we, we make a package so we can balance the cost of this package. And fourth, we were making a lot of incentives so we can bring in uh, this new sort of cars that they use, how they call buy model car or something, that they can use uh, diesel or, or gasoline and electricity, and also uh, a lot of other, um, of other um, incentives so we can have more renewable energy so we can, and, and also efficient plan in, in energy, so we can, and we also distributed last year, well, so we started, we, we give two subsidies in electricity for the 40% poorer of the country, and also distributed, uh, we started with that, it's not much, but two uh, bulbs 
at, you know, this low consumption bulbs in order to, because that, just that, just to change two normal uh, bulbs, yeah. bulbs, yeah. bulbs um, uh, it, it took down 20% of the energy cost in, 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 and, and, and so we have made a lot of things and now we are analyzing but they're, they're generally so I won't say more because I was informed that when I come back to the country some other measures so because inflation as you all know pretty well affects the, mainly the poorer people so we're going to take some other measures so we can I mean we cannot resolve the international problem, but we have to go into helping our people to deal with it in a better way. Corruption, you ask me. Well, in, in December 2006, I sent a lot of laws to, the, to, to Parliament in order to increase transparency, poverty, uh, because in Chile we did have transparency, but we had passive transparency. If somebody asked for something, they would give, they receive the information. But now we force ourselves as a state, as a government, to have active information about main things, you know, about public licitations, about members of the, of the government, who they are, uh, why they are, what kind of contract they have, and so on and so on. Uh, we also send uh, some bills in order to improve modernization of the state. So may, mostly of the chief of services should be uh, appointed, not politically appointed, but through a, um, the, it's called um, a high, um, I would say, a high public administration office. So people conquer there, give, and, and then they bring to the president a, a some names, and you choose between these people, but these people were selected with a panel of people looking in, with the profiles for the, for the position. So we are going to, uh, we have a lot of uh, different services that are going to pass through from, from last year until we finish my government through these possibilities. So they won't be any more politically appointee. They will be, uh, I mean, uh, chosen. Uh, I'm not saying that the political appointee don't have merits. They do have. And uh, the thing is to choose good people with merits. But in this uh, new system, uh, merits will be the main issue. Um, also, we passed some bills, but and they're, not, they're not still enacted. Uh, they're still in Parliament, trying to improve quality of politics. Because, uh, as I said in my remarks, I think one of the main challenges is how we re-enchant people with politics. I mean, I am a person who are completely convinced that politics and political parties are the only um, kind of organization that can think in... Uh, in um, national perspective, because you can have lots of interest groups, and wonderful that they are, but they are organized by their interests and not with this national perspective. So I really believe that politics is fundamental in, in any democracy. But when you see many people, and mostly young people, uh, feeling that polit politics is, uh, is a almost, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, it's not good, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's corrupted, or it's... Uh, <laughs> or they are more looking at inside the parties than the needs of the people, I think then democracies have a problem. So uh, we are dealing with that. But also we are working, and we have also a, 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 a project still in Parliament that's putting some regulation for the last month before, before an, a campaign, an election. So you, you can regulate situations so there won't be um, electoral intervention, I would say. So we have a lot of things we have been doing, a lot of things we are, are in Parliament, 
and we hope these laws are approved pretty, pretty fast. But of course, if, um, if there are other things that we can do, we'll do. Because I, I don't think Chile is a corrupted country. As in any country, there has been sometimes situations uh, that can be uh, seen as corrupted or irregularities. And in any time that those things have happened, uh, we put that information in the judicial system. There is a trial and people who have, if they deserve uh, penalties, they receive it. So um, I think uh, we, this is a very important issue to in, in, so people will believe also in governments and in the institutions and in democracy. But talking about institutions, I think that sometimes in Latin America we have seen some, I would say, political belligerence. And this is very destructive, I would say. One thing that we learn in Chile, well, some days we forgot it, but mostly we've learned, is that it was very important to develop civic friendship that you can be with somebody who doesn't think like you. He might be your political adversary, but he's not your enemy. In the past, when Chileans look at themselves, or some look at others as the enemies of the state, it passed to us what happened to us. And, but sometimes, when you hear people talking, when you hear people criticize, and I think in democracy, criticizing is perfectly normal, and, and it's, need, it's a need. But other thing is to go come and go into belligerency or, I don't know the word than in English, but in Spain they use a word that in the last campaign that it really represents what's going on in Chile sometimes. The word is crispación. Um, it's like a huge tension, I would say. And I think when you come to those sort of climate, political climate, it's not, not, is, is not a good thing for democracy. So uh, whatever we can do to encourage civic uh, friendship, uh, to discuss among our differences, to be able to even fight with passion, because that's part of how nature is, how we human beings are, is different than to go into belligerency. And I think that's one uh, complicated issue in Chile in other countries too. And probably it has been exacerbated in Chile because the democratic government lasted six years, and mine lasts only four years. So when the new one comes, the next is thinking it will be my turn. So that's, uh, that's sometimes it's not a good issue, uh, because in Chile there's no re-election. So it's, it creates, I would say, a perverse incentive, and, and not to, to produce the best civic uh, friendship. But, okay. That's what I want to say. I, I said to you that I'm not the brief kind of girl. <laughs> I'll take just two more questions because all we have time. The lady there in the middle. Okay. So, so, okay. Well, you first, and then I, I get one upstairs. Hi. <laughs> uh, good afternoon. My name is Judith Magistri. Good afternoon. My name is Judith Registry. I'm with Women for Women International, an organization that works in post-conflict countries, helping women move from victim to survivors to active citizens. And my question to you is, uh, what do you see as uh, the challenges and opportunities for women's leadership in post-conflict reconstruction, particularly given your experience and commendable leadership uh, in your country and in the region? Thank you. And the last question from upstairs. Um, okay, in the first row, the, uh, with a white shirt. Yeah. yeah. 
Hi, my name is Alfredo Brockman. I'm a structural engineer working in Sinclair Night Merts in London. I'm also Chilean. Uh, my, I've got a comment and a question. My, my question Very is... Very brief, please. Okay. Just only a, a question. Only a question then. Uh, relating to the urbanism plan and the housing development, my question is, how does this relate to work opportunity? I didn't hear, sorry. And, sorry. How does this relate to work opportunities and transport links from their own home, especially if they are commuting to Santiago using the bus system? Thank you. Okay. Clearly it's easier the woman question. <laughs> um, well, I think the women's role in past conflicts or in nation, reconstructing nation and so on, is very important. Well, in, in the case of Latin America, what you see is that during conflicts, women uh, usually uh, get pretty much empowered. Or because they are part of the, of the organization during the conflict, it's different kinds of organization. Or because men leave home go into the conflict, if, it, if it's a war or if they go into prison or whatever, it, it happens to them. So women have to stand with their families, work, uh, provide them food and, and many other things. But also because uh, women, uh, that's my personal opinion, maybe not everybody agrees with it. Uh, I think women have some special condition, not everybody of course, uh, I've known some of them that clearly you know, don't have it. But they have very good conditions. And uh, as I'm a doctor, I never know if that's genetic or cultural. I don't care. To be able to work with uh, different groups and try to find solutions in sort of win-win solutions. You know, there is this study made in little children, I think in the United States, uh, by a psychologist, a children psychologist, and I think it were children of four or five years old. I'm talking about that age. So cultural probably is not the main issue there. And they put girls and boys to solve conflicts inside the, the, class, the classroom. And uh, they can define some sort of pattern, uh, similar pattern. Because uh, men looks, try to solve the problem. I mean, the result is the main issue. And in those ones, little girls try to solve the problem, but in a win-win relation. I mean, not at any cost, I would say. And that, so what I'm saying is not that women are better than men, is that it can be, it's necessary to be complementary. Because with both efforts, you can find the best solutions. You can have results, but not at any cost. And that, especially in post-conflict situation, it's very important to have empathy, empathy, to try to put yourself in the shoes of the other, to try to hear the other. I think in conflict resolution, that's usually the more difficult issue, to really hear what the other is saying, because words don't express what they really want. And you have to look underlines, and you have to try to understand what's going on, and you have to find out what's the satisfactory for it. And of course, it's not only women who can do that, but I think women have a, an ability to do that and can be very helpful. Uh, also because uh, it's, uh, usually uh, women as, as organized, uh, the family, or are very well uh, organizers. They're, they are also very, solidarity is a very important feeling. But I think as in anything in the world, we need men and women.
otherwise had been expelled from this uh, auditorium. <laughs> that was a politically correct thing to say from me. No. Later on, I'll tell you what I really think. <laughs> no, <it's a> <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> well, I'm not sure if you asked me about Transantiago. Was that the question? <laughs> Because I already ask forgiveness in public in my country. If you, if you need me to do it again, it's okay with me. No. But I understand what you're saying. I mean, one of the issues, one of the problems that we have had in, in urban planning and in housing developing and, and in, um, is that usually uh, the cheapest, uh, the cheapest of, uh, fields or, or places, land, that's the word. The cheapest land is the, far away from the central of the cities. So it's very complicated because people that sometimes born, were born in some neighborhood, lived their own life there, went to school and so on, when they have the possibility to, have to be an owner of a home, have to go and live very far from it. And sometimes uh, families receive these houses far from it to places where there's no transport system, where there's no health system, where there's no school, and so on. So they must continue going to the other uh, side of the city to continue doing the regular uh, situation. So from one point of view, I would say that when you develop houses planning, you need to develop not only houses planning, but transport, environmental, and so on. That's why we organize the government in the four principal areas. I mean, each secretary of state is in charge of its own sector, but also they have to work uh, linked uh, many things. And we had a political area, of course. We have a social area. We have an economical area. That's economics and employment. And environment is in many of those. And we have also one area called territory, uh, environmental. Well, and there is transport also and public works too. Because uh, when we need to build cities, not only houses. And city means transport system, houses, and, and green spaces, and so on. Uh, so we are developing uh, a way of organizing the city that will hopefully take into consideration all this thing. Even Transantiago, when it was uh, an idea, it meant to solve problems that weren't solved in the ancient system. And uh, even though it was a disaster, uh, we are working on it, it's improving. That's the news. Not yet enough, but we'll continue improving it. But the idea was uh, how we can solve, I mean, how we can live in a city where you have enough transport, but we are not invaded by transportation, uh, invaded with contamination, and how we can organize uh, all these different areas and fields. So I think it's very important, but uh, I don't think I have much to say. I, maybe I did not get some of your question, but that's what I would like to say. So just, just one small thing. 
is that to, to, to fight against uh, you know, this discrimination that people going out of the city. We are, have a special programs where people prefer to buy used uh, houses in the same neighborhood, so I think they can, they can choose whatever program. Please, uh, may I ask the audience to remain seated until the president leaves the theater. Um, before we bring this meeting to a close, on behalf of the LSC, I would like to give the President Bachelet some mementos to mark her stay here. The first one, is an official certificate from the LSC and May I take this opportunity to suggest that perhaps uh, many of our Latin American female students, which I know by experience how bright they are and how hard they work, take inspiration from your visit here and from your speech to be the next presidents of their country. Wow. Just go for it, girl. This is an ordinary cup, but it's not, Madam President, because the first person, the first visitor that was awarded an official LSC cup was President Nelson Mandela. Oh. So you are in very good company. <laughs> thank again, President Bachelet, for her visit to the LSC. I ask you again to remain seated until the president has left the theater, and I want you to show your appreciation to our guests with a warm round of applause. Thank you.